And I think it's really important for a startup to understand how the market plays really, really early on. Uh, so they can, they can position their IP in a, in a part of the market that they have genuine capability and rights over. And, and I mean, you, you see it all the time, you know, corporates are looking to, to add something to their portfolio that gives them an added advantage in the market to gain further market share. Uh, and it's got to be something that's relatively simple, you know, as long as you've got a reimbursement code, as long as we know that the regulations make sense, you've got to make sure that you've, you've got a genuine strategy around IP, because ultimately that's what the corporates are buying. They're not buying the team, they're not mm. buying the capability, they're buying the IP to give them a monopoly in the marketplace. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Paul Turn. In the day, I work a pretty normal job as a doctor in Singapore. But in my spare time, I interview successful people, mainly in Asia, with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. I trace their stories right back to their humble beginnings, and I ask, what do these unconventional journeys teach us? And can we similarly be more imaginative in what we do? Welcome to the Alternative CV Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to this special episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. As you know, in this new season, I've teamed up with Catalyst to produce this podcast. Catalyst is a startup incubator and co-working space based just next to Singapore General Hospital. So this episode is a webinar recorded in conjunction with Catalyst's second birthday. And in this webinar, we talk about how the health tech and medtech startup scene has been affected by COVID-19 and how startup founders can negotiate these changes and get access to funding. Finally, we also throw around some ideas and trends in this space, such as in telemedicine, onshoring of production, and innovating large-scale solutions for public health. This was a very good introduction to the latest things that's happening in the medtech and health tech space. So without further ado, here's our webinar on how the health tech startup ecosystem has changed post-COVID-19. Hi everyone, welcome to this webinar organized by Catalyst and my name is Dr. Paul Turn and I'm the host of the Alternative CV podcast. So before we begin, I've got a very exciting announcement. So on this special day, which is Catalyst's first birthday, I've teamed up with Catalyst to produce season two of the Alternative CV podcast. So what is the Alternative CV podcast about? So we focus on Asian stories and we do two things. Number one, we tell the stories of people who have interesting and mostly uncommon careers, hobbies, side projects. So we found that often people would look at these kind of successful people and think, you know, wow, these guys are so successful. They do crazy things. They do awesome things. And I could never do that. So our job is to break down their journeys and we kind of show how they got to where they are, how they got started and the steps they took along the way so that you can think, okay, I could do that too. And number two, we believe that it's also not just good enough to be good at your professional job. You need to build skills alongside it. And we believe that these skills multiply so that you become exponentially more useful and unique. So I get my guests to teach you these skills that you wouldn't learn in school. So these will range from things like how do you pitch an idea to investors? How do you structure insurance policies? How do you start a charity? How do you get from zero research publications to sitting on multiple editorial boards and Overall, the goal is to be both educational and entertaining. So lots to look forward to. Join us at Alternative CV. That's the word alternative and then the letters CV for like curriculum vitae. AlternativeCV.fm is our website. Or you can find us by Googling Alternative CV on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever app you use your podcast for. Our first episodes will be dropping on the 1st of October. So stay tuned for that. 
Okay, so today we are talking about how startup ecosystem will shape the healthcare system post-COVID-19. Let me just first go over how you can ask questions. So what you would do is that you pop your questions in the Q&A section. So down at the bottom of your Zoom panel, you should see a Q&A button. If you find anything that uh, interests you or you, you want to respond to one of the speaker's comments today, just pop your question down in the Q&A and then I will read it out for you. Right. So I'm really excited about our panel today and let me introduce my first guest. He is none other than Dr. Buzz Palmer. Buzz Palmer is one of Australia's leading and most visible voices in entrepreneurship and medtech innovation. Buzz is the co-founder and CEO of MedTech Actuator. He's also the founding partner of Dialetica Group. He's co-founder of Health Tech Angels and Buzz is a serial entrepreneur and professor of entrepreneurship at Monash University. Buzz is a passionate technologist and he enjoys mentoring startups and helping them to execute on their strategy and commercialization journey. So hi, Buzz. Great. Good evening. Thank you for the invite. It's wonderful to be here. Great. Our next guest is Mr. Dario Heyman. Dario leads the building and the venture analytics of Health Tech Alpha. Health Tech Alpha is the most compelling database and analytics platform dedicated to health tech ventures. Dario also leads research engagements and leadership alignments with clients such as pharmacal insurance companies, investors, and tech companies. He is responsible for the overall research and market intelligence of the health tech ecosystem in Asia, and he's worked in drug discovery mainly for the development of novel drugs in oncology, both in pharma and in academia in Singapore, China, and Germany. Welcome, Daryl. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation today. Looking forward to it. And finally, we've got Audrey Loke. Audrey is the Director of Healthcare and Biomedical Enterprise Singapore. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Audrey is the Director of Healthcare and Biomedical in Enterprise Singapore. So she leads the healthcare and biomedical team. And as part of her role, she looks at the development of the biomedical ecosystem and she focuses on helping local startups and enterprises. Prior to this, she was the Head of Strategic Planning at Spring Singapore and the Assistant Director at the Ministry of Trade and Industry. Hi, Audrey. Good to have you with us. Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. It's always a mouthful to talk about government stuff. Yeah, it always is. Yeah. Okay, so a great panel lined up for you tonight. Um, we've got Buzz, who is familiar with accelerating the startups. We've got Dario, who specializes in researching these startups and tracking their growth. And finally, we've got Audrey to provide us with the government perspective uh, by working with Enterprise Singapore. Right, so I will kick us off with a few questions first. Uh, as always, if you have any other questions, pop them in the Q&A and then we'll get to them as we go along. So let's start off with Buzz. Buzz, so we've seen that COVID-19 has shown us how important it is for startups to move fast and to take advantage of these opportunities and circumstances. What have you seen that's changed as a result of COVID-19? Do you find that now with you know, changes in the ecosystem, startups are now able to go from an idea to selling a product in the market faster than ever before? Thanks, Paul. I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I think there's a few factors and forces that are in play, I think, right now in the startup world and healthcare innovation. And one, of course, is, is government. One, of course, is behavior, acceleration and priorities. I think it's, I think it's fair to say different sectors and different segments of the market are experiencing different um, opportunities or 
or sort of barriers. I mean, th throughout history, what we do know is that, you know, post-war, post-pandemic is when we see a huge increase of innovation in the healthcare sector. So, so arguably, we're just at that, that foundation, the, you know, the ashes of, of the phoenix, and we're about to see some phenomenal innovation coming out. In terms of the current situation in COVID, you know, as I mentioned, it really depends on sort of the sector that you're involved in and, and, and those startups that are able to pivot. So perhaps those in telehealth, mental health, even biotech, and, and you know, if, you're in the, if they're in the uh, vaccine space, uh, at-home care, of course, we're seeing significant um, pivots towards those and traction as well. Uh, if you'd asked me this question three months ago, uh, I think I would have said, well, actually, the barrier right there was, was uh, purchasing and the barrier right there was investment, but actually we're seeing a, a large amount of investment now coming into the startup ecosystem, especially in health. You know, the, the fragilities of the, of the system are now being uh, opened up and we're seeing actually where the gaps in the market are. We're seeing some short-term pivots as well, some short-term opportunities, things like PPE, over-the-counter technologies that are, that are connected. So the Internet of Thing connectivity systems. But then on the other side, we're seeing perhaps a slowdown of, of opportunities. So those that are perhaps in the, you know, the, 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 the typical medtech space, the class twos, the class threes, perhaps some primary allied healthcare technologies, some diagnostics, of course, unless they're unless they're sort of COVID-related, fertility, disability, elective surgery, aesthetics, all those kind of uh, sectors we're seeing, uh, um, parts of the market we're seeing a slowdown, essentially because of supply chains or the inability to do your clinical trials, infrastructure, of course, being closed down in certain parts of the world. I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a bit of a, a balance happening, but those that are certainly digital and those that are, that are sort of class one, we're seeing a much more divergent pivot towards opportunity. Those that are perhaps more uh, clinically relevant or, or, or a harder regulatory process perhaps being slowed down uh, in some way. But I, like I said, I think what we're seeing now is a, is, a, is a huge flow of interest towards healthcare. Investors coming in, we're seeing hospitals open their doors in ways that perhaps they haven't opened them before. We're seeing governments be more flexible with their purchasing power and how they might be able to drive innovation through that system, especially in the sort of the telemedicine uh, sort of space. Um, so it's a certainly an interesting time. And I think the I think the next 12 months are going to be an extreme, if startups can hang on that uh, for that period of time, I think it's going to be an extremely interesting time and I think we're going to see a, a massive drive of innovation in the space and actually I think we're going to see huge market gaps as well whether we're suddenly going to have startups coming into uh, the fold that we haven't seen before. Great thanks um, Dario Audrey if you would like to jump into feel free. Um, yeah I, I can I can add on yeah yeah, but I think we, we see the same thing uh, to us there are kind of two groups of companies out there right today they're the ones that successfully pivoted into coming up with something that is COVID-related and COVID-relevant. These are companies that are really bulking up now. They are really running as fast as they can. And the, the hope is that they will be able to make use of whatever new channels, new levers, new financial muscles that they have developed during this time uh, to even thrive post-COVID, right? So that's that, that group. Then you have the other group of companies that are actually slowing down activities because they are probably less uh, relevant in the current COVID situation. But nonetheless, some of the strong fundamentals issues that in, that's in Southeast Asia continue, right? whether it's aging, whether it's diabetic conditions, whether it's chronic disease management. So they should continue to persevere in those areas. Um, and I think um, what we are trying to do at ESG is we're trying to look at whether there are segments of markets that are ready to open up or ready to relook at some of these non-COVID issues. And we're trying to kind of make those matches happen. Yeah. So from the ecosystem point of view, actually, here, what we saw primarily is that over the past few months, 
I would say the past six to seven months is that we saw more investment actually going towards the medtech space and towards the biotech space, not so much into the digital health space until recently. So we saw lots of investment, particularly when it comes to Asia in, in, in China, going into the development of, of, new, of new, new biopharma on the medtech side into PPEs, as, as Bas was, was rightly mentioning. We saw a bit of a slowdown, particularly in, in Asia Pacific, when it comes to the investment in digital health. This is now somewhat reverting, and I can back to this a bit later, is that we are now seeing that, considering that there was lots of pressure, spare, particularly on the mental health state of people, is that we are now seeing more investment floating into this side. We can focus on, on this a bit, a bit later. But now we are seeing slowly but steady is that the ecosystem is again changing. Investors are a bit, are a bit adapting as well. So we do see that there's a bit of a change now coming. So it's interesting to see where we Yeah. So Audrey, you, you know, so just to pick up on something that Audrey talked about earlier, which was that you, so we see that there's definitely a short-term spotlight focused on Sean on these COVID-related projects. But what do you think, you know, to, to all the panelists, what do you think are the longer-term themes? Like what's, you know, is, is, there, is it just a short-term focus on, on medtech and biotech right now? Or do you think that there are things that have fundamentally changed that will continue to power this industry um, going forward, even after COVID has blown over? Yes, there are definitely fundamental demands for healthcare uh, that will last way beyond COVID. So as I mentioned, chronic disease management, mental health, increasingly new, new modalities for treatment, cell gene therapy, precision medicine. These are things that we think are here to stay. Um, and, and we want to kind of prepare our companies uh, for you know, when this whole kind of crisis uh, kind of blows over. We do see, however, so from what we see from, from our point of view is that you see certain companies, particularly the ones that were now entering, let's say, the making masks space, is that they are now slowly dying out again, considering that yeah. they kind of only took the leap of, of saying, hey, let's just, let's just make masks now. So we are now seeing that they're slowly dying again, or they, well, they continue pivoting again to, to somewhere else, considering that the prices are now all dropping. So they're not necessarily very profitable anymore. And we see this in, in other spaces as well. I think from my perspective, I'm seeing a couple of different things. I'm seeing perhaps some of the, the more risk-averse type organizations taking a longer-term view than perhaps they had before, whether that's from a financial perspective, from a hospital delivery perspective, but even from a consumer perspective. We're now seeing this, this huge change. I think what COVID has actually done, it's opened up the doors to the fact that actually we, we can probably do more healthcare at home than we realize. You know, this, mm. this, this idea that we have to go to a hospital to do something is actually now just being thrown away, especially for, for regional areas uh, of, of the world. We're seeing that you can actually monitor certain vital signs. You can monitor disease. And now we've been forced to monitor in ways that we hadn't done before. And I also think we're seeing a slight uncoupling from healthcare assets, from healthcare services too. You know, where technology is really starting to position how, uh, how healthcare is delivered. And, and we're seeing, we've talked about it for a long time, but this idea that the consumer is now driving how data, how healthcare is delivered to them, how it's delivered to their family, how they want to be involved, how they want to have some form of control and insight. And of course, that leads us all towards this personalized AI, point of care diagnostic type space as well. So we're seeing a really nice convergence. And, and for people that have been in the game for a while, I've been trying to push this. Uh, now we're seeing this, this massive behavioral change and we've kind of been forced uh, to do it in, in different ways. And, and, and I think it's hugely exciting, actually, for the healthcare industry. And, and I, I often think, well, what, what's it going to look like in, in 10 years' time? You know, we're you know, working with some of the hospitals around and say, well, actually, we, we know 
that uh, the current model isn't going to work for the future. And so how do we adapt to that? How do we make sure that we utilize this moment in time to really reposition how we're going to deliver healthcare to, to consumers? Because of course, healthcare is, is also moving into well-being. So we've got to bring this whole kind of segment of well-being into healthcare too, and help people want to, to prepare and have a predictive analysis or an indication as to things before they even happen. So. Look, I, I think we're going to see uh, dramatic changes, but also in the financing space. I think you know, traditional VC, I think, is, is starting to move into different directions as well. Mm. I think we're seeing capital coming in from different directions. I think we're seeing large corporates and businesses collaborating in ways and partnering in ways that perhaps they hadn't done before. And so you know, the, the, the whole foundations of traditional commercialization are changing. And it's really exciting to be on this ride as well and watch some of the startups and, and watch some of the industries make that move. That's some great ideas right there, Buzz. And I'd love to pick up on those ideas again later when we talk about some ideas that are, and opportunities that are interesting to all of you in the space. But just kind of um, going back to, to some things which we're talking about, I think something which uh, was really interesting from what all of you said was, you know, pivoting because, you know, as much as Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook used to say, move fast and break things, right? That's a Facebook motto. And, and yeah, it really seems to me that those startups who have been able to say, first, first of all, pivot from what they were doing to a COVID related play, and then now pivot back to, to see where the opportunities are in terms in, in the longer term. I think those startups are, are definitely doing well. Let's, let's go on to, to, as well, to something which you were talking about, Buzz, and, and I'd like to direct this question to Daryl. Buzz, you were talking about venture capitalists and, and how VCs are coming in and how investor money is kind of shifting. So, Daryl, you, you're in charge of analytics at Health Alpha, and you've kind of tracked these startups as they've come in and exited. How have you found that this, the, the ecosystem or, or how do you, have you found that things have changed more generally now that there's a spotlight on healthcare in, in, the, in the whole VC world. Have you found that investment is increasing in this space? And um, have you seen more startups enter and exit at the same time? I can talk about this probably for the entire hour if I, if I want to, uh, but let's probably wrap it a bit shorter. So when we're looking into different ecosystems and we now are tracking basically all ecosystems across the entire world. So from the US over Europe, Middle East and, and, and Asia, which is roughly 80 to 90% probably of the entire ecosystem. And we're just comparing Asia and the US probably. How venture capital has been developing over the past few months is extremely interesting of how certain investors or larger corporates are then looking into uh, deploying the investment. When you look into the US, there we saw that venture capital has been has been booming. So we saw, I think at the moment, roughly $17 billion um, being invested into digital health. This excludes the, the, the Bongo acquisition about a month ago. So we are almost at $34 billion now because this doubles it. In Asia Pacific, however, it has been slowing down. There you see that there's the difference in, in how venture capital is, is being deployed in the US versus Asia. In, in the US, which is a very established market already for, for digital health, we saw that the funding has been increasing considering A, you have investors that are dedicated to digital health and they understand the space. So we saw that they now saw the, uh, saw the opportunity to push the ventures they are being partnering with and they are being investing. So we saw lots of massive deals uh, beyond the 100 million mark. In Asia Pacific, especially during the COVID shock 
let's let's call it, we saw that funding has been almost being depleted. China between January and March almost saw zero investment in digital health. Yes, you saw investment in medtech and you saw investment in biotech. You haven't seen any investment into digital health at this point. It's now slowly but steadily picking up again. Uh, Bioformis, which you can largely say it's still a Singapore venture, even though they're now headquartered in Boston, you saw they now raised large amount of, of, of capital. So we do see now this being leaping back and we do see that there's now an increase um, of investment again going in, into the space. From the corporate side, we don't see that uptick yet when it comes to investment being deployed. Most of the larger corporates, that it be um, insurance companies or pharma companies that have a CVC, are still primarily investing in either the US or in Europe. There are not many CVCs at the moment available in Asia Pacific that deploy investment. And even so, for instance, there has been investment by, by Allianz X recently into an Asian venture. I would need to I would need to think in my head which one this was. You don't see many investments that are coming from the corporate space yet. We do, however, see that there's a that there's more partnership opportunities now not coming. And considering that we are working both with the startups and with the corporates, we do see how this is shifting. So we saw that in the beginning, it was more like the startups are trying to push the corporates to start partnering with them by, by, by telling them, hey, this is our solution. This is how we can support you from coming now from the corporate point of view or reaching out to us, for instance, saying, hey, I would like to partner in the space of cardiovascular diseases in the, in the, in the, in the monitoring space. Do you have any, any startups we can reach out to? And this is where we now see the shift coming. So it's no longer coming from the very juvenile ecosystem of, of the startups, but more coming from the corporate point of view. And this is an interesting thing. And Bas was, was, uh, was mentioning that uh, that earlier, even we were, I think, ahead of, of, of the curve, similar to him probably, um, when digital health was still very new to, to everyone. Nobody really knew what digital health was. We kind of pushed and pushed. And now people finally understand due to the bus during COVID-19 is that finally people understand what is digital health and how can we finally implement those solutions and bring it to the corporates and to the, and to the consumers. Extremely in interesting space. Yeah, very very interesting. I just want to push you a bit more, Dara. Sorry on, on these things that you said. Uh, so first of all, why why this bifurcation between Asia Pacific and the US? That's one. And secondly, you know, as you were talking about that, surely. So how easy is it for for startups to raise capital, say from say a, a Singapore startup or a Asia Pacific startup raising capital from from the US? Um, are, is is there this ability for capital to flow across borders? And then shouldn't that like kind of paper over the, the, the problems that you're saying that Asia-Pacific um, investment is slowing down and US investment is still hot? I mean, from the investor point of view, you don't have many investors that are set up in both the, the US and in Asia. You do have certain, um, let's take Fidelity's aid roads that is largely also active in, in China and now also since last year, I have an office also in Singapore. So they do start deep, deploying funding. Those are more growth and late stage investors. You don't have many early stage investors that are operating across, across regions. So you largely in, in Asia Pacific have either very small venture funds that are very diversified in the industries that they're investing in, don't have many early stage digital health um, focused investors. One fee in Singapore base is, is, is HealthX Capital. This one is, to my knowledge, in, in Singapore, the only digital health focused digital health investor versus in, in the US where you have more of those investors. So what we saw over, over the past month is that people rather try to invest their money into more established ventures already than taking a high risk. So 
So the model of taking higher risk, but in the end having a higher return was slowing down. It's more all investments. So the most of the investments we are now seeing in Series B, Series C, Series D funding is they are taking less risk by still betting on something. And therefore, the early stage pipeline is a bit dry at the moment. Startups are struggling for it. We now have our first cohort of startups. We are kind of as a partner, partnering with them. So we don't take any equity, we don't buy any any shares and nothing. We're simply introducing them to our entire network, kind of helping them to reach out to the market to kind of make noise about it, considering their fear a bit of left out at the moment, um, considering that the early stage pipeline and people try to tend to take less risks. So you don't see many early stage investments at the moment. Audrey probably has, she's, she's, she's nothing. So I think she, uh, she agrees on that. Yeah, go on, Audrey. You, you have something to add? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, oh. <laughs> same, we see the same thing from, our, from, from what we are seeing in the industry. Uh, the early stage companies uh, are struggling a little bit because investors are taking lesser risk. In yeah. fact, uh, teleconsultation being so hot uh, during the COVID season, uh, they are now also struggling to find a niche for themselves in order to get investment interest. Because you see uh, now a, kind of a flood of uh, teleconsult companies coming into the market. And increasingly, investors are asking how I use different from the next guy. Um, so everyone is now thinking of how they can either pivot or kind of uh, sink in roots and, and figure out a competitive advantage for themselves. Absolutely. This, this actually made us to change our classification within our database. Now, teleconsultation is no longer a category by itself. It's more technology because everyone kind of offers it. You can either offer it as a as a primary care model or as a or as a disease management model. So more on the on the more on the later stage of your patient journey. It's extremely interesting how this has developed. When you saw like the early stage ventures back in mm-hmm. 2012, 2013 start establishing teleconsultation, nobody knew about it. No one was even booking their doctor appointment online. Now kind of everyone tries to do it, even though now we see again a drop down in, in teleconsultations over, over the past one to two months, considering people still enjoy going to their physician. Even, even me, uh, I wouldn't book an appointment online and see my doctor via, via, via phone if I don't have to, considering having this personal relationship with your physician is, I think, still very important. And I think it takes lots of time. And, and Buzz was, was mentioning earlier, like the behavioral change. You need to change the behavior of a person in order to have them engage with a physician via your phone than just going to him and seeing him. It's just not personal. Yeah, that's very interesting. And let's pick up on that tele- telecommunication, uh, telehealth uh, theme later on. But coming back to, to this idea that the big fish are getting bigger and um, the small fish are just, is just so competitive and struggling to survive. Question for all of you. Maybe, maybe we'll start with a buzz. If you're a small company that's just started, you have an idea and you're starting now, given what we've talked about so far, advice for, say, small startup founders? Yeah, look, I mean, it is changing quite considerably. And I think that's fair to say. I think part of the challenge is, is, is the uniqueness of what the startup is offering. And, and, and as Audrey and Dario have alluded to, you know, there's, there's a bit of a saturation happening in certain markets right now. And actually, the, there's, nothing, there's nothing unique about them in, in some cases. And, and I mean, part of, the, part of the challenge always is, and if, we, if, we, if we're talking about digital health, is, is, is the purchasing of it. You know, how do you purchase it? And how do you integrate? So this is always a massive problem uh, in the space. You know, everyone's using different bits of software. Everyone's using different medical records. Everyone's using slightly different systems. And then you've got this new kind of software coming forward that has no purchasing code in many cases. And so therefore, uh, trying to understand how the, um, how, the, how the reimbursement is going to happen is, is, is part of the challenge in, in the digital space. 
But with the other technologies, if we talk about diagnostics, if we talk about devices, and we look at those kind of spaces, you know, part of it is, is, is also about integration, but how do you integrate with existing systems? Uh, and, you know, we're looking at a transformation of healthcare. Now it's not going to happen rapidly, but it's going to happen over time. So how can you think three or four years ahead? And the thing that I find with startups that are looking to work with corporates or looking to work with larger organizations is how are they adjacent to their existing uh, sort of portfolio as opposed to how are they trying to compete with something else that they have? And I think it's really important for a startup to understand how the market plays really, really early on. Uh, so they can, they can position their IP in a, in a part of the market that they have genuine capability and rights over. And, and I mean, you, you see it all the time, you know, corporates are looking to, to add something to their portfolio that gives them an added advantage in the market to gain further market share. Uh, it's got to be something that's relatively simple, you know, as long as it's got a reimbursement code, as long as we know that the regulations make sense. I mean, they're your two bigger killers, right? Reimbursement and, and regulation. As long as they make sense and they fit adjacent to a large corporate's portfolio, you're more likely to get an ear. Uh, from the core. If you bring something in that's tr you know, massively transformational and you're actually going to have to change behavior in a significant way, that's a very difficult thing in healthcare. I think you need a more step approach. And, and you know, the other thing is that you know, at startups, we have this tendency to, to put as many features as we possibly can into a product, noting that manufacturing becomes unreliable and, and, and expensive, noting that it's really hard to function some of these things. And so how do you make sure that you're, you're delivering a technology that's just good enough to compete in the market that gives you market traction and share that allows you to penetrate into new business areas and then add new features as, as time goes on rather than trying to bring everything into into one go and so these are part of the, the sort of strategies a startup needs to think about and of course who are the right partnerships who are the hospital clinical manufacturing uh, supply chain partnerships this is something we always forget about but supply chains right now are, are a major challenge in the covid space for diagnostics and devices we're starting to realize that the distribution is is not as free and easy as it was maybe six months ago and so you know, think about how you're going to be able to manufacture these products in a way in certain different in different jurisdictions around the world is a really important factor as well. Yeah, that, great advice. Thank you so much. Um, so, how are you unique and how are you useful, really, in a nutshell? And then, and how do you, and and really thinking about who you're trying to serve and how you're able to position yourself to to meet that need. Yep. Yeah. So but, but you've also got the you've got to have the IP packages. Well, you've got to remember that that in that in the med tech space and in the pharma space, we're trading IP. That's ultimately what we're doing. IP is, 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 is the capture of what you're trading. Investors are putting into IP because you're looking to busy yourself in a market. So you've got to make sure that you've, you've got a genuine strategy around IP because ultimately that's what the corporates are buying. They're not buying the team. They're not mm. buying the capability. They're buying the IP to give them a monopoly in the marketplace. Interesting. Let's change tack completely and let's talk about government and the role in the startup ecosystem. We've got a, a question from the floor and it's mainly about how the government and the state is involved in encouraging this, this innovation. So let's go over to you, Audrey, if you could kick us off. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. So what do you think uh, is the role of government in, in pushing for innovation in the health tech med tech space? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we are enablers. And if I were just to look back at the, the kind of biomed history that we had in Singapore, we started 15, 20 years ago where we invested a huge amount in the R&D. That was the first pillar we tried to build up. Subsequently, we went into trying to work with the clinical partners we had. So we worked very closely with the public hospitals. Uh, that wasn't an easy battle. That took many years. Uh, but now I, I'm quite proud to say that, you know, in every uh, healthcare cluster that we have, 
we do have a, a group of you know very passionate innovators, clinicians like yourself, or even administrators who are keen to push for innovation. And we were not just looking at working and getting their clinical expertise, but also looking at whether we could push for adoption to happen. So that was the second phase uh, that we went through. Uh, that's still ongoing, but we think that going forward, you know, creating data, how do we integrate data, that will be the next big thing we'll have to push for. So pushing the boundaries, making sure the ecosystem come together, kind of strengthening networks within the ecosystem, those are the key things that we do. And a platform like Catalyst or even bringing in uh, Dario Bus into the ecosystem to make sure that, you know, people are connected, starts are connected, corporates, and they were connected with even ecosystems outside of Singapore. Those are part of what, what we do to kind of build the vibrancy and the expertise we have from within. Yeah. So that's a nutshell. <laughs> I don't bore you the details. Yeah, that's <laughs> gory. That's great. Any, anything else to add, Buzz, Dario? Yeah, look, I think, I think government plays a, a pivotal role in, in this kind of space. I mean, you know, they, they sit between public and private as well. They have influence in that space. I think there's all sorts of different areas of, of the, the commercialization of the export of the manufacturing uh, parts of the system that, that they have influence in and actually they're able to, to perform. And so, you know, I, I think about you know, th- things like tax reform, of course. We all love tax reform and, and how can we incentivize those to manufacture in our jurisdiction or to be able to, how can investors come in with different capital gain tax uh, systems as well. Um, of, of course, capital is useful. Capital in the right way at the right moment is really important. But what governments are really good at doing is, is, is essentially orchestrating, is bringing together those players that perhaps traditionally haven't been brought together. We talk about public and private. We might talk about large corporate and startup by allowing a system that, that, that allows them to integrate and to talk and to function and to collaborate and to prepare new things that perhaps haven't been seen before. You know, Focusing on resilient supply chains, for instance, you know, focusing on, on, on big capex systems for manufacturing, uh, distribution agreements, free trade kind of stuff. I think there's all sorts that government uh, could be doing at this moment in time. And, and as I say, I think the, the next few years are absolutely critical. And it's going to be interesting to see how governments respond to this and, and, and which, kind of, which parts of the sector they're going to see as a priority sector. I think healthcare is absolutely going to be one of them. But how can they make sure that their jurisdiction is, is doing two things. How is it sort of helping their population? So the first dividend should be the health of their population. How are they making sure that technologies are helping to their, their, their community to live longer, happier, healthier, but also how are they providing financial dividends back to the nation? So how are they growing the economy as well? And these, these both have to be factored in. I think, I think red tape gets in the way sometimes. I think it's a great time for governments to, to slowly start positioning a more streamlined approach to innovation, uh, a more openness to procurement, uh, a way to get clinicians engaged. And of course, you know, even if they can get involved in the research space, how do we change incentives for those that are providing the new innovations, the new wave of discoveries coming through? How do we incentivize them to think about commercialization and not just publication? I think that's a, I mean, that's a whole new sort of uh, conversation, but I, I think it's a critical one as well because we've got to be able to drive, we've got to now inspire and motivate this next wave of entrepreneurs, most of which in healthcare come from hospitals, universities, and research institutes. Well, so so much to be said Sorry. in this space. No, no, no. It's so... like this, I'm going to talk. So I just... <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. I'm really enjoying the discussion we're having so far, guys. It's really, really good. Okay, so we kind of have another like 20 minutes or so. I thought that in this next segment, we can do something quite fun. So let's kick around some ideas, if you don't mind. I think that this is also what people... Um, are here to hear about. So we've got quite a broad panel. We've got, as I said, you know, we've got different perspectives on, on the startup ecosystem. So let's talk about ideas and let's talk about what do you think 
is exciting? What do you think will work in the future? And also feel free to be controversial. What do you think is overhyped and might not work so well? So I'm going to kick us off with like the elephant in the room, all right? It's telehealth and perhaps a broader theme about decentralized healthcare, which we kind of talked about already so far. Great. So any, any takers to, to kind of start off well, with your thoughts in this era? Good, Darryl, look. Let me start with telehealth. It's something I, I enjoy talking about because everyone currently talks about it. So when you were looking into telehealth about a year ago, it was, it was more like, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have. Nobody really needs it because I like to see my, my physicians who all we definitely need telehealth, everyone. The problem there is it's such a broad field. A, telehealth, you have telesurgery, you have teleradiology, you have telepathology, you have tele, you have tele normal consultations as a, as a primary care model and, and on the disease management side. So more at the later stage of it. The way is how are you utilizing it? The problem most startups are currently doing is they don't necessarily focus on one particular thing in, in, the, in the telehealth space. So considering that you often don't have clinicians that are starting it, they don't necessarily know how to tackle it. So, so then they're saying, hey, we build a nice application and it, and it works. I'm, I'm connecting a physician to, to, the, to the customer in the end, or to the patient. But they don't necessarily know how to properly structure it. So having a teleconsultation solution alone anymore, it doesn't really work anymore. So you need to actually start building the entire ecosystem around it. You have certain ventures that did very well in, in that space, building it from the triage servicing. So I'm answering a couple of questions. It's sending me, me, me forward and then it tells me if I should actually see a physician or if I should not see a physician. This one works extremely well versus the ones that are just building, integrating and hoping that it's going to run. Those startups will die eventually because there's no value proposition of what they're currently solving, but having a nice solution in the market that doesn't necessarily work. The funding that is currently de deployed in, in the space is tremendous. In our H1 report, I think we published that in Asia Pacific, the Taylor consultation funding went up by 22x. If you compare this, wow. <laughs> it's tremendous. Like the next one was, I think, medical diagnostics that raised by 95% year-on-year com comparison. The bus that is currently around teleconsultation is way too much. And I'm, ex um, I'm expecting that during the course of 21, 22, we will see lots of ventures that incorporated over the next, over the past six to nine months, probably going to die out again because they don't have any better proposition of what they're currently solving. That's my quick take on it. Bus probably has a different point of view. No, on the contrary, I'm, 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 I, I agree with you, but I think I think you're right. There's, there's going to be a mass of, of startups that have just a generic platform, and you know that'll get some traction. But you're right, will it stand the, you know, the the, the time frame, and, and will it, you know, which does it have resilience post uh, pandemic? And and part of the challenge, of course, is is the same old things, isn't it? It's the cybersecurity. It's the it's the integration. It's the, it's the data share, it's the infrastructure as well. You know, you've got to have the right infrastructure for this whole system to kind of work effectively. And why it might work in some countries, of course, some of the emerging countries, it might not work. And, and, and they're some of the most needy countries. It's interesting that what the pandemic has actually done, it's, it's really opened up the differences of healthcare capability and offering, hasn't it? Yeah, all of a sudden, we've just seen who the haves and the have-nots are. And it's, it's, it's been a shock, really, just to see how little some nations and how little some people have access to healthcare. And I think healthcare should be right for everybody, not just for those that can afford it. And I think telehealth offers that kind of hope in some manner. But I also think if you're going to offer something in telehealth, it needs to be bound to something else. I think just having a telehealth thing is one thing, but bound to something that allows for real-time monitoring of something, that allows data to be processed on, on an ongoing basis so that a clinician can make a more informed choice 
The patient can make a more informed behavioral choice as well. I think this is what's really going to change the balance of, of telehealth in the future. Because the reality is there's probably hundreds of them out there right now. We're probably only going to see three or four of them really succeed through you know, in, in the next five years. Yeah, there are actually some insurance companies that started partnering and integrating multi-tailor health solution into their own application. As this is what Bus was saying, that we are seeing that it's going to be integrated somehow, somewhere, because it needs to be. It can't be a standalone solution anymore. Um, it just won't survive. And this is where partnership. You don't have to. There's this, this technology is already out there that exists, and you could help them scale and do other things. Interestingly, there was a report came out in the UK recently that that 29% of the population are, are now more inclined to put their data online than they were before COVID, you know, from, from, a, from, a, from a tailored health perspective. So we're seeing behavioral change. And I think we're seeing more confidence in, uh, in some of the systems that are coming out too. Very, very interesting. Let's, what about... What we're also seeing, one yeah. more thing, is the recent IPOs in the US market, you also see is that it's primarily now uh, teleconsultations uh, solutions. Uh, that are either pushing or their stock price has increased dramatically. Like TaylorDoc increased over the past five months, I think by 330%. It's just dramatic. It's just tremendous of the amount of, of, of hype that is currently going into it. This will at some point dry out again and we're expecting it, but there are, I think three or four, there's ZocDoc in, in the pipeline, there's Row in, in the pipeline, two other very massive ventures that want to IPO in the, in, in the next six to 12 months. So we are seeing that there's still this push towards going IPO and at the moment it's the best, it's the best time for, for a venture to go public in the, in the space because after this it's probably too late. Yeah, lots, lots, definitely lots of buzz mm. happen. Lots of buzz around this. <laughs> yeah. Is this some insider trading that we're getting here? Is this, we need to make notes here of... Uh, of oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no one is listing on the Singapore exchange, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Not yet. Um, we've got a question from the floor about a bit of a specific use case for, for this. Um, it's, it's about e-pharmacy. I think it kind of relates to the broader topic of distributed dis- decentralized healthcare. I, I think it's a matter of time actually, uh, for, for the pharmacy to come into space. I think, I think the moment we start digitalizing all this kind of stuff, the ability to, to e-script and to, and to prescribe, and of course, it's going to be delivered to your door. I think, I think the, whole, the whole likelihood is, is, is happening. I mean, I've, I've seen three or four startups already that are, that are playing in this space. And of course, it, it really depends on the regulations of the jurisdiction. It's not going to work in every jurisdiction. But you pick your markets, you pick your low-hanging fruit, smart. How, how, once again, it's about integration. So how do you integrate into a system that already exists, that clinicians are already using, that pharmacists are already using? And you can just simply uh, you know, go through the regulatory system for the prescription of whatever it is that you, you need to do. And, and you've got a delivery service on top of that as well. I think, we're going to, I think this is going to be part and parcel of the future of, uh, of healthcare. My, my sense is, yep. sorry, Dario, you want to go first? Audrey, Audrey, you can go ahead. <laughs> My sense is that the problem with e-pharmacy is not so much uh, regulation. I think that there are regulations today. I think it will eventually ease off, especially with more and more demands for teleconsult. My, my take is that the biggest hurdle for e-pharmacy is really the business model. Because we know that doctors today, a big part of their margins do come from drugs, the sale of drugs. And once you start looking at e-pharmacy, uh, you need to trace the money and see where it flows. And I think that will be the biggest hurdle. Yeah, I don't think anyone has kind of cracked that yet. We do see lots of ventures that are now having both solutions integrated. You can take a 1MG or a NetMets in, in India. You can take HaloDog, which is probably among the people joining this one here is probably the one people know the most. HaloDog in Singapore 
does does the same. They're both having an e-pharmacy site and an, and a teleconsultation site. In Japan, it's 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 getting more and more popular now. You have a couple of solutions that are very disease specific. For instance, you have a cardiovascular model. They're having a cardiovascular remote monitoring solution integrated with a teleconsultation solution or tele rehab for cardiovascular diseases, plus the prescription e-fulfillment that is being then sent to your nearest pharmacy. Considering that delivering medication in Japan is not allowed, so you need to still pick it up at your nearest pharmacy, but they still make it available at your nearest pharmacy. You can just go there and pick it up. So we do see this shift there, and I'm expecting that this will stay, kind of, but it's more on the, on the adherence side again. So patients are already diagnosed. On the OTC marketplace, I'm not quite sure if, 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 if e-prescription makes sense there. Likely not. Um, I, I wouldn't order my, like my aspirin online. I would just go to the nearest Unity and get it. Mm. Very, very interesting. I'm going to direct everybody to um, a new topic. So let's talk about onshoring. So I think um, one thing which COVID has brought up was that when you have a supply chain crunch, then it makes sense to have things produced onshore. Like, for example, from your PPE, which is very low-cost items, all the way to your ventilators, high-cost items. Thoughts about this theme about onshoring? Do you think it's a short-term trend, long-term trend? It's very interesting. Sorry, Audrey, you go. <laughs> That's a governmental question. <laughs> so, so we thought about onshoring, to be honest. And, and in fact, we did onshore quite a bit of production uh, here in Singapore when COVID started. But the problem is always that Singapore is always a high-cost country to do such productions. And some of these PPE, for example, are very low-cost products. Um, if we look beyond PPEs, we look at maybe some of the diagnostic reagents. You know, it's not just Singapore that's ramping up in capacity, it's everyone around the world. And, you know, the, the big giants are also ramping up their capacity in, you know, in tens and hundreds um, of times. And, and we are looking forward and we're seeing, you know, what happens post-COVID, you know, will they flood the market uh, by significantly lowering prices? How then do we continue to compete here? And I think the only way we can do it is if uh, our, demand, our demand drivers continue to rally together and, you know, be okay with that higher price. That's something that has not been seen yet. Um, mm. That's one way. But the other way to look at it is to see if there are capabilities that can be switched very easily. So, for example, we know that swaps, nasal swaps, right? They can be 3D printed. Not the fastest way to produce nasal swaps, but possible, right? Uh, and we know that actually dental clinics have a lot of 3D printers. Can, can, can we do something about them such that in during crisis period, they can you know, switch the equipments that they have to produce swaps so that in peacetime, they can go back to doing what makes sense for them from a business point of view. Yeah, but but no easy answer to that question. Yeah. I think we're I think we're we're starting to see a bit of a drive of, of nationalism, perhaps in a in a in a group that we've not seen before. I mean, from an Australian perspective and also a British perspective, uh, being British, of course, I think what we're finding is that the realization that a, that a, that a nation is not self sustainable in the time of crisis is really kind of shocked people. I mean, here in Australia, we, we have enough food to feed 80 million people, a population of 26, but we don't have the ability to produce face masks because we don't have the, we don't have the supply chain coming through. We have to get it from a, from a country that you know, is, is, is struggling to, to produce it. We, we're also a high labor cost market. And so how do we manufacture those things in a high labor market? And how do we do it effectively? And of course, you know, sort of automation is, is a way around that. But I think we're going to start seeing a drive towards well, actually, we should be able to, to, to look after ourselves in the event of a crisis. 
Uh, I think we're going to start seeing countries focus a little bit more on how they can capitalize on these kinds of advanced manufacturing opportunities. Even if there's a premium attached to them, if they're transformational in their effect, if they're, if they're unique and, and backed by a premium system, then of course, you can kind of build that into your business model. Uh, but certainly in the countries that I'm seeing, we're seeing it across the US, the UK, we're seeing it in Japan, we're seeing it in Australia, we're seeing it in Germany. You know, this idea that we have to be self-sufficient, we can't rely on other nations all the time. Um, we've got to be homegrown first. And of course, the fact that, you know, that there's a, there's a, there was a report out not so long ago that they're expecting another pandemic in 10 years' time is going to get a lot of governments uh, worried. And so you kind of think, well, how do we make sure that we're not in this situation again, where we're, just, we're, we're literally grabbing at straws to try, and, to try and cover the basics of healthcare? And PPE is really sort of, of uh, uh, shown the fragility of the markets. Well, you need to go the exact other way, trying to open markets more and get things delivered more, more, more easily, considering that, uh, as Audrey was saying, probably producing a ventilator in Singapore is probably 20 times the cost from if you produce it back in China or in, or in India. So we need to figure out also from a governmental point of view how governments can better collaborate and work together in, in order to make things available easy and quick. But I think there's an argument there about quality as well. So quality, yes. acting, you know, we, we, we've all heard the stories about all these, all these fake face masks were traveling around the world and they were not effective. We've heard the stories of how ventilators uh, just couldn't be manufactured at the speed that we needed. And so countries were trying to tool up as quickly as possible and transfer existing manufacture. And yes, it might have cost $20,000 per ventilator, but they were trying to do things. And I think part, part of what we'll see is at least, yeah, I agree opening up in some, in some respects, but I think we'll find that countries will start having a focus on some priority areas and at least having some manufacturing that's capable of, of sustainability and that can be switched and, and retooled in the event of a crisis. I think, so I think we, we might see a bit of both, but right now I think nationalism, certainly in the sort of the democracy is really starting to, to, to pull home and people are demanding you know, homegrown access. Guys, uh, we just be mindful of time. We've got like uh, a few minutes left, but this is such an interesting conversation. So, are you guys good to go on for another five, ten minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk about one more topic and then wrap up? You guys okay? Yeah. Yep. All right. Cool. Right. So let's talk about the last thing, which I'm I'm kind of will pitch to the floor is is like informational system. So if we take a macro perspective, you know, so I'm thinking really like public population level, you know, uh, like outbreak, disease spread tracking, or these informational systems that large contract that are built into the, baked into the public health system. What do you think about innovation in this space? Could, could you rephrase that for me? I'm yeah, just so confused that, the question. Yeah, fine, fine. Um, so I, I think what I'm thinking about this is, have you seen startups or do you think that there's a role for, for companies to come up with innovative solutions with regard to tracking, say, to population health on a, macu- on a macro perspective. So like tracking, for example, disease spread or contact tracing or you know, these kinds of public health related um, initiatives. It's currently a very governmental way. So what we saw is that over the past month that most of these solutions that are in the track and trace space were all developed by the governments, not so much by startups itself. We do see some, some new on, on trace like Facebook stepping in, Google stepping in, but this is largely the companies that already have a wide user range anyways. Mm. So for them, it's fairly easy to bring their solutions to the market considering they can simply Im- implement it and therefore it's going to be available just, just for everyone. You do have the issue with privacy. If there's a small startup that is entering the trick and trace space, 
that do you as a consumer believe that the startup is handling your data appropriately and therefore you want you, you would like to share your information with with it there's a bit of, of a concern around wechat and and alipay using all of the user information to do many other things i think most of the other track and trace applications have the same kind of second thought of, of, of users using it i would Personally, I haven't seen any startup entering the space yet. Everything what I've seen was all governmental at the moment. I don't see any opportunity, a big mm. opportunity for, for a young startup to, to access it. I, I think my, my, my sense is it's not so much that, that it cannot be done. It's just that we need to prove the use case and the health benefits of the solution, and especially if we roll out at the public level, then that, that benefit is to be quite clear. And today, I think while we have done a lot of small pilots, we haven't done enough to establish a particular use case uh, for the ministry to step in and say, yeah, I did something I want to do for the entire population. I think the, the health step tracking could be one of them. But I think even then, it was more of a pilot than that it was something uh, more widely rolled out. But I'm quite encouraged because actually during COVID, we do see uh, quite a lot of public-private partnerships, uh, even with the healthcare clusters. And even within uh, the dormitories, the farm worker dormitories, we're trying to track so many of them. Uh, we, do, we do see uh, the healthcare system actually working with, I, I, I can think of at least five startups uh, to do remote monitoring of vital signs um, because there was just so many problems with that. So I think COVID really centered the mind and because it was such a strong um, demand, uh, there was such a big problem statement out there, everyone could kind of come together and, and make things happen. So I'm quite encouraged by it. I think that if we were to be able to come up with a strong enough use case, uh, which I know the MOH is now looking at actively, there is a possibility that we will be able to see something uh, rolled out across uh, the nation, actually. I think, I think the technology already exists as well. And I think it exists through large corporates like Apple, MasterCard, of course, telecommunications. They have access to, to, to where people are at any moment in time and can trace them. But it goes to, to Darius' point. It's all about privacy, isn't it? It's all, it's all, it's all about how, mm. what's the line that you cross? At what moment in time do you think it's okay to breach somebody's personal privacy to access a... A, a moment in time and it's a it's a tricky question and i mean there's an argument to say that in the event in the event of a, of a pandemic like south korea do uh, they access location technology with with mobile phones and credit cards because and, and we've seen that that's worked extremely well but of course is that the right thing to do are you allowed to invade a person's privacy otherwise here in australia we're very restrictive on the other on the other way and that's why we're seeing this sort of second wave in Melbourne right now. So I think the tech is there. Do I think startups will, will come through? I'm just not sure. I don't think they have the infrastructure to do it. But right now we're seeing IBM and Salesforce play in this space with their AI technology as well. Mm -hmm. And they're utilizing you know, this kind of movement scenario uh, of being able to try and predict where, where uh, the virus will hit. So it's an interesting question. But I, once again, it's, it's all about people's personal data and, and their comfort zone. And at what point do governments say, Stuff it. Yeah, it's not about your data. It's about human health as, as a whole. And uh, I'm not sure we're, we're quite there yet as a society. Singapore has announced yesterday that the track and trace app is going to be rolled out nationwide in, in uh, restaurants and gyms. So I'm not sure how much people would still appreciate being then basically also tracked. So they kind of be forced to, uh, to use it. I'm not sure if everyone feels comfortable of sharing all of the information of where they eat, how often they hit the gym, etc., Those are information, it's, it goes very deep in, into your privacy, as, as Bas was saying. Me also coming actually from a GDPR regulated country, mm -hmm. it's like you can delete every certain information the government ever stored about you, versus other nations like China, where they're tracking you via, via your WeChat 24-7, basically. Somewhere in between, probably. <laughs>
Yeah, very but different. I, I think we do see that consumers are increasingly being um, quite open-minded about it because of COVID. Everyone's kind of forced to do it for the public good. Mm. And it kind of, you see that sentiment moving while there will always be that group that's not comfortable. That I think the, the kind of where everyone stands kind of shifting. Yeah. Exactly. Very, very, very interesting, guys. Such a good conversation. And I could go on for another hour if we, if we had the time. But let me just push you all on one final question. So I won't ask you if you have, if you're starting something, but say you had a couple of million to drop, right? Which kind of company, what kind of company would you invest in right now? One by one, who wants to start first? Bus probably has a long list of, of startups to invest in. <laughs> Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Because, I mean, you want diversification. Of course, you do any investing. <laughs> look, I think, I think you've got to you look ahead of the, the trends. And I think healthcare is a really interesting space. For, for me, I'm always going to put into something that's connected. So a hardware with a, with a connected digital side, machine learning. But of course, if we're going to be real, I think 5G might be an interesting space to, to pop your money into right now. Personally, find quite interesting at the moment how the market is shifting towards the mental health and how you can how you can treat people with digital therapeutics around mental health solutions. There was, for instance, Akili has has launched their first the first digital FDA approved like a like a mobile ap- application. I would personally probably would put my, my, my money into a startup that is more on the mental health side in, in order to bring people away from getting medications in order to use digital health to, 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 to treat their diseases. That would be my bet. I'm a career bureaucrat, so I'm the last person who should be asking about this. <laughs> uh, but, but I think the, the ones that we see that fare better are usually the ones where there are uh, strong IPs and, and something that is really uh, steep in the clinical work that has been done. Um, mm. Those are the ones that typically fare better because there's a very strong competitive advantage over the next the next player. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, everyone. It's just so exciting to be talking about all these things and to trade ideas. Thank you very much, Buzz, Dario, and Audrey. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Okay, so just to round up, we uh, will be posting this as well on our podcast. That's Alternative CV. So Alternative and then the letters C and V. You can find us alternativecv.fm or you can find us on Google, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anything, anywhere where you get your podcasts from. And once again, yeah, we tell stories of uh, successful people with unconventional career paths, hobbies, side projects, and we teach you skills that you wouldn't otherwise learn in school. So look out for us. We're starting again in October, 1st of October, and sign up at our webpage, alternativecv.fm, if you want to get uh, notified about when our podcasts are being released. Thank you again, Dario, Buzz, Audrey. Thank you so much. It's been excellent. Thank you for joining Catalyst, and we hope to see you at more Catalyst events in the future. Catalyst is, is in SingHealth, is in, sorry, is in Singapore General Hospital, next to Singapore General Hospital, rather, in the Alumni Association. And it is a place, it's a clinician-centered startup accelerator and co-working space. So Catalyst puts on all these events, bringing lovely people like all of you guys, panelists today, to, to, to meet with startup founders and meet with clinicians and to power them to the next phase. All right, thank you very much, everyone. So I'll see you at the next event. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul. Good night. Thank Thanks, you. everyone, Catalyst. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Catalyst, which is a clinician-focused startup incubator and co-working space in Singapore. To find out more about Catalyst, visit their website at thecatalyst.com.sg. Special thanks to Dr. Reina Damawan and the team at Catalyst for their help in making this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, do consider subscribing if you haven't done so already, or sharing this episode with your friends. I'd love for more people to benefit from this. If you've got something to say, you can always reach out to me at poll, that's P-A-U-L, at alternativecv.fm. Leave a review, get in touch, pick up the conversation, anything you want to talk about. You can also find show notes about everything that we've talked about and any references we made at alternativecv.fm. See you next week. Bye.